Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta. What? QuickTime just told me cannot record? I had to, I had that issue last it's week. It's fine. No, just there's no it. problem. Uh, I, I don't know why I was being weird, but it's recording now. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Quarantine uh, drags on. Uh, we've got a white paper about the other epidemic of opioids and uh, overdoses that people used to talk about a lot and that continues to be an important issue. But want to, you know, continue talking about the coronavirus situation and something that, you know, I've been thinking about a lot, as I, I assume most people have, is like, Will we be able to get out of this eventually with a vaccine? And it's um, there's this sort of factoid out there that that Dr. Fauci and, and others have emphasized that it would optimistically take 12 to 18 months to develop a vaccine. And I not knowing anything about anything. I always found this confusing because it's like, how can you predict how long it will take a scientific breakthrough to occur? That's obviously like paradoxical, right? But so it turns out that what he's saying when when, when people say that isn't that they know how long it's going to take to do the research that would allow for the development of the vaccine. They're saying that takes a year's worth of testing to prove that the vaccine you have developed is in fact something that you can be licensed to go use. So it's a it's an estimate that he can be very rigorous on because it's an estimate of how the regulatory process works rather than how the process of, of scientific discovery works. But that naturally raises the question of whether there isn't stuff we could be doing to speed that up. And, you know, Fauci, um, other people in positions of authority, I, I mean, including informal kinds of authorities like like Bill Gates and stuff, uh, seem very hesitant to suggest any kinds of, of changes here. But that seems a little off to me. I mean, with any regulatory question, there's costs and benefits. And the benefit of a coronavirus vaccine is obviously really high. I don't want to be demoralizing, but like this sucks. Like I'm sitting in my closet recording a podcast for the second month in a row. And there's many worse things happening out there than me being in this closet. It's really bad. And we, we should try to get everybody, you know, we, we talked about the like open things up fanatics and like what I think is wrong with them last week. But they're not wrong to say it would be good to, like, get life back to normal. I thought there was a really smart place and reason that we can put in the show notes that kind of each side of this debate has, like, the worst possible perception of the other side. And so I think that there are some people on the open it all back up side that think that the people who oppose that are, like, having this amazing time being locked in their closets and unable to send their kids to school. That is untrue. But I want to get back to something, because I think when we're having a conversation about vaccination or the how this vaccine will be produced. Our colleague Ezra Klein had a conversation with Bill Gates that went up yesterday. Highly recommend listening. And he talked about how, like, 
it's very likely in two years that we will be able to get three billion people vaccinated for this form of coronavirus. And he makes the point that this target is not as difficult as HIV because the protein in HIV changes its shape constantly. And he makes the point that we actually did get a vaccine for SARS. We didn't even have to do a phase three trial. We've now have anti virals for Ebola. So I think that this idea that this this is a very possible thing, it's just that when we're having this conversation about timelines with regard to cities and states, there have been some people who've said we can't open things up until we have a vaccine. That's going to be an issue because as Gates t- told Ezra, we are going to have animal data available at the end of the summer, perhaps. And that is like the first of many, many, many steps into actually getting a vaccine that then could be tested and then used in humans. The reason that the vaccine has become kind of an easy point to stick a flag in and say at this point it will definitely be safe to open back up is for one thing, because like the concern is if you open up prematurely, then you're going to get another wave of the virus. But also because there are so many unknown unknowns here about the behavior of this disease, you know, the concern about, okay, so we do all right through summer and then fall hits and there's another wave of this. All of this is not just something that's a public health concern, but is really affecting the economic reticence here. And, you know, I do think that as far as opening it back up is concerned, there are people who are each day that we do not have full or even reduced but present participation in public spaces. There are people and businesses that are suffering. There is also a broader economic concern that like business and the market generally appreciate certainty and predictability. And so not knowing when all this is going to end is compounding the immediate effects, you know, when you talk about the stock market, when you talk about Goldman Sachs, that kind of thing. So having some kind of vaccine timeline allows the second category of those people to say, okay, even though we don't know how long we are in the immediate stasis, we have good reason to believe that we're on a path where X months from now, we can open everything back up. And so we're going to start planning and laying the groundwork for that. And not just not just business, right? I mean, we were talking before the show about like people who would like to get married. There's all kinds of logistical snags in throwing a wedding. Like, it's not the worst thing in the world to need to delay your plans somewhat. But it's really helpful to have some kind of sense of when you would be able to do it. Like, you've got guests. There's like there's there's a lot to to arrange. And that's true for graduations. It's true thinking about, like, will schools be open? And, you know, there's, there's a calculus there. So, like, the fact that if we thought a vaccine was coming in October... That would be a really good reason to delay opening schools until October. The fact that we know almost certainly that there won't be a vaccine by October is in that case, I think, an argument for doing it sooner. That it's like, if you wait for a vaccine, you're going to be waiting a really, really, really long time. But either way, it's like having some sense of what's going on timeline-wise is useful, but also just like doing it faster is very valuable. Like it it unlocks a lot of potential things for I kind of hate the phrase like opening up the economy because it's so much more than the economy. It's like aspects of people's sentimental lives. Like they would like to see their family members. They would like to celebrate meaningful events. Well, and also on the flip side, no one is going to like force you to parade through the streets. Like so much of this is about aggregate demand and what choices individual people are making about when they feel safe enough to return to some semblance of normal life. Right. So the reason testing vaccines takes so long, right? All all medicines, you have to go through a a somewhat lengthy testing process, be, you know, obvious reason, right? Like you need to make sure it works and you need to make sure it like doesn't kill people. Uh, safe and effective is the the official regulatory standard from for the FDA. So the way they do this normally with a vaccine is first they test them on animals to try to ascertain if it's working. Then they go to a phase one trial with a small group of humans basically to assess like, is this safe or do we have to go back to the drawing board? If it's safe, you then do a slightly bigger group for a phase two trial and you try to say, like, just biochemically, did this generate antibodies in the people we gave the vaccine to or have we 
totally misunderstood the situation. And again, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but like the scientists who research this stuff are they're pretty good at their jobs. Like they're, it's unlikely that they're going to put something forward that that is deadly or that totally, totally fails. But then you need the phase three trial. And the point of the phase three trial is to say, like, did this actually work? Like, if we vaccinate the broad population, are they really going to have substantial immunity? Or are these lab experiments that don't work in the real world? And the way this works, you know, with, with any kind of vaccine is like most people just don't get sick on most days of anything, no matter what they do. So you need a really big population for your phase three trial. You give half of them the vaccine. You give half of them a placebo. And then you kind of set them loose on the world for a while, like months and months and months, and you're gathering data, and then you're trying to count up like how many people from the placebo group got sick, how many people from the the treatment group got sick, how sick did they get? It's a test, but it's just slow. To get statistically meaningful information out of a trial like that, you need a lot of participants, and you need to observe them for a long time, because watching what happens for two weeks is just not meaningful. Like Most people aren't going to get sick. It's going to just be a coincidence. And it's particularly hard because people are supposed to do what they're doing. They're supposed to like live life in society. And what we're doing right now is trying to minimize the number of people who get exposed to coronavirus. So again, like to get statistical traction under these circumstances is going to be really, really hard. So what you could do to speed it up... if if anyone out there has seen Contagion, right, in the dramatic scene, uh, the, the the vaccine researcher, she just like gives herself the vaccine and then she goes to visit her dad who's who's already sick and then she, she doesn't fall ill and that proves the vaccine works. That's a, a little bit oversimplified. You can't do a study with an N of one, but you can do a study with a relatively small group of people where you give some of them the candidate vaccine, you give some of them a placebo, and then you like right away expose them all to the virus. And then you can study them for, you know, a few weeks and you get your statistical test. It's not instant, but it's way faster than doing a population level study. But this is considered unethical. I mean, so it is useful to think about the fact that, you know, everybody's new favorite doctor, Anthony Fauci, has experience with balancing the regulatory demands of science and treatment approval with the kind of political pressure of the need for an immediate solution. He was in his current position during the AIDS crisis. And there is a New Yorker profile of him for a couple from a couple of weeks ago that uh, gets into in a certain amount of detail, you know, the initially antagonistic relationship that activists at the time had with, you know, the entire Reagan administration generally for entirely understandable reasons. Right. For moving slowly (laughs) on an epidemic that was killing people, apparently because it was killing gay people. Right. But ultimately, he came to an understanding with some of the activists who were, you know, really putting pressure on him specifically and began to kind of develop better relationships with him. Larry Kramer, who is a very famous and very cantankerous AIDS activist, speaks highly respectfully of him. And Larry Kramer speaks highly respectfully of approximately no one. And so it's thinking about not just the political dynamics of like, oh, he listened to them. He did work to make sure that testing was representative of the affected populations that they wanted to identify and that kind of thing. But also the science of it, he was what he was doing inter alia was a allowing people to engage in multiple experimental treatments at once, which was a regulatory concern, and b speeding up the phase two by allowing broader adoption after the safety had been guaranteed to test efficacy, because there isn't a strong argument for not letting people access a treatment that has been preliminarily demonstrated to be safe if what you're trying to test is that it's effective. The problem with that, of course, is that there's a big difference between testing treatments and testing prevention measures, right? Like people who had HIV in the 1980s already had HIV. That was a defined population of people. And so there isn't in the same way a particular population of people who would be the first to sign up to test this treatment that might not work because they would particularly benefit from it, right? Like if you 
if you think about it, the ways in which people are particularly vulnerable to coronavirus would potentially make them more exposed to adverse effects of other drugs. If they ended up getting the coronavirus, that wouldn't be a good outcome of the study, even though testing efficacy was supposed to be the point. So that there is that concern there. It's not exactly as if Anthony Fauci is the exemplar of a dude who will never bet, you know, who would never speed up the rules if there were a greater public health benefit. I think the question is which phase you're talking about. You know, phase phase one is obviously like a problem to speed up. This is what we saw with the chloroquine issue where one of the major studies got suspended because of the development of heart arrhythmias. You know, you have to test that there aren't significant adverse impacts of a treatment first. Phase two is easy to speed up if you do have a defined population of people for whom you would be able to know if it's safe. But in a situation where the phase two and phase three potential populations are like the exact same people, speeding up phase three and getting to that kind of long-term data collection point with healthy people who ideally would be able to get the health treatment they needed if they were to get infected is a good idea. Here's the other problem, though. I'm not sure that we actually have a very good idea of who the people who are least vulnerable to the coronavirus are. We keep getting lists of new new indicator symptoms. We keep hearing new problems that people are coming into hospitals with, particularly people in their 30s and 40s. Not to say that those are the people whose mortality rates are highest, but it is to say that epidemiologically, I don't think there's a group of people that we can say for sure is in good enough shape if they contract the coronavirus that they should be the group we should pick to test general efficacy of a vaccine. I think that that's a really important point, because how we've been talking about the people most at risk to coronavirus, I think, makes it seem like it's a much more disparate group than it actually is, because there's been like, ah, we need to protect the elderly with pre-existing conditions. And what that actually means is people over 50 who may or may not have high blood pressure and a host of other coexisting factors. I looked this up yesterday, and that's about like 50 to 70 million people. I used to work in the HIV AIDS space. And in terms of the research we were you were doing on that, which at the time when I was working in the space was focused on reducing mother to child transmission of HIV, you had a very distinct and disparate population. You even were able to have, especially with people living with HIV, you could even look at people based on where their T-cell count was at the time. And for testing drugs like Truvada, or even the wider example of prophylaxis against HIV, essentially to prevent the transmission, you have, again, a distinct population. Now, that population, men who have sex with men or specific groups, that can get a little wiggly because of how some people self-identify. But again, you have a distinct population. With coronavirus, you have kind of like, well, people over 50 with these existing characteristics, but also not necessarily people over 50, because again, as Dara points out, people in their 30s and 40s are getting very, very sick, um, especially those with some pre-existing conditions like asthma, which I have. And so I think that that is one of the challenges here, is how the distinct nature of some of these groups makes it The non-distinct nature, rather, makes it particularly challenging to think about this from a research perspective. Okay, let's take a break, and and I want to come back and and push more more enthusiasm. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. 
You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burroughs' new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. I think these are well-taken points. And I, I think a a poor argument for, this is called a human challenge trial. I, I, and I think a bad argument that I have seen made is that, well, you know, if we give it to people who are in their 20s and, you know, they're non-smokers and don't have serious health risks, it'll be safe and it'll be fine. I think we do know that if you limit yourself to younger people with no obvious pre-existing health conditions, that that is safer than if you don't or that if you do the opposite. But it's not safe. I mean, it would be dangerous to volunteer to participate in, in a human challenge experiment. At the same time, it's quite dangerous to work in an ICU under these circumstances. It is dangerous on a day-to-day basis to work as a as a paramedic. It's dangerous to be a firefighter. 18-year-olds volunteer to serve in the military and they face, you know, at the moment, I think the the risks of of joining the military are probably fairly low, but the risks are very unpredictable. It was quite high at the peak of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And many of the people who were serving in those wars, they didn't know what they were signing up for. You know, like I know people who who joined the reserves before 9-11. They thought they were joining a peacetime military to serve their country. They ended up joining a wartime military. Um, you know, they're mostly like patriots that they're happy about it. But these are things that that happen in life. And in particular, right now, the medical professionals and first responders who we are all celebrating them as a society, right? Like this is like it's it's a good thing to take a risk and do things to help other people. Most of us are not qualified to work in an ICU and help people that way. But lots of people who don't have any kind of specialized skills are perfectly qualified to volunteer as vaccine subjects. I know, again, I'm a philosophy major. So like you could gin up like lots of interesting things where it's like, would it be acceptable to like pick 50 random people and do a secret medical experiment on them if that would generate a vaccine? You know, and like people could debate that in an interesting way. But we're not at that point. Like there is no need to perform like shady secret experiments on unwilling volunteers. A group uh, called One Day Sooner with very little official or philanthropical support has tried to sign up volunteers. They have thousands of people who say they'd be willing to do it. You could obviously get more volunteers if you tried to like enlist a social effort to say, like, this is a good thing to do. Like, you could consider serving your country in this way. We're not talking about, like, I think anything that's at the real philosophy thought experiment starting line. We're talking about allowing people to take a risk to help others, uh, which is something that in non- you know, vaccine testing contests we do all the time. So the thing about the for the good of society or for the good of the country argument, which I think is solid, but, you know, I think it's worth talking about 
how there are public policy choices that could be made that would make it easier for people to do those things that we think of as like serving their country. You know, in in peacetime, like in non-crisis times, the obvious rhetorical example that gets pushed up, you know, especially on like the center left is teachers. People say that it's a very mission-driven job, that it's so rewarding, that it's so important, and yet don't necessarily provide, you know, the kind of compensation packages that jobs that are less, quote-unquote, valued by society often command. So there's a question of if the market expresses revealed preferences, how valuable is teaching really? In the current context, you know, for one thing, there are the people who are not usually thought of as frontline workers who are in this context on the front lines, everything from like grocery store clerks to prison medical staff who are neither getting the material support that would make it easier for them to get treatment if they were infected, nor are they necessarily even getting the symbolic support of, you know, we're going to clap for you when you come home at 7 p.m., which is a practice that's taken root in New York, which doesn't make sense for all shifts anyway, but that isn't even practicable in places that don't have that kind of population density. There's kind of an interesting side note here, like, how do you as a civil society make sure a person feels valued if you're limited in your face-to-face interactions with that person for medical reasons? But if this is something that the FDA were to get on board with, which would be an important step (laughs) given its role in the approval process, you could imagine things that Congress could do to make sure that the participants in this vaccine trial have guaranteed there is some kind of, you know, special reserve of respirators that is available should any of them develop acute cases of of the coronavirus, that there is, you know, some kind of set aside package so that if they have to lose work because of the demands of monitoring or because they are, you know, because they contract anything that like that they're situation is taken care of. And that's generally a decent way to express how important this is, rather than just kind of, yes, you know, like, human nature, you know, or whatever is going to lead some people to volunteer. But if this is really something that we want to make a focus, there are things that could be done. Yeah. But I mean, at at the moment, it's just like the proximate thing is that most Medical ethics professionals say that it would be like horrifying and wrong to deliberately expose people to the virus, that instead we have to let a trial drag on for months while tons of other people are involuntarily exposed. You mentioned Dr. Fauci's um, experience uh, in, in the AIDS epidemic, and it is, it's recounted well uh, in, in that recent profile and, and a number of other media about it. And, and to me, I mean, a critical thing is that political work wound up altering the calculus that the public health establishment sort of used there. And I think with good reason, the sort of like medical stakeholders are not trying to rock the boat here, because I think the backlash to like a scientist-led demand to relax the safety constraints would be in some ways severe. But that's why I think it's would be useful. This is why I am talking about this. And I think it would be useful to have elected officials talk about it, because ultimately, like, this is not a scientific question. It's like a broad social balancing of considerations type question. And, you know, I just think the 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 medical ethics world is like overboard on first do no harmism, which is a, you know, like a like a nice slogan, but doesn't reflect how other major social institutions operate in a practical sense. And the urgency, I mean, we were talking about the, the utility of a vaccine and a vaccine timeline. And the value of accelerating the timeline here is is very high. And that's different from some other things that have happened. You know, there was a, 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 a rubella vaccine developed in the late 1960s. And by the time that came out, 
like rubella had been endemic for decades and decades and decades so although it was a big problem i mean a lot of people got sick and a lot of people passed away because of it the vast majority of people who were alive at that time had already been infected and survived so at the margin speeding up the development of a vaccine by three months was not that important, right? What was important was to get it done someday and get it out there and get it distributed. And the other aspects of vaccination policy, like cost and convincing people it's safe and all that stuff were the sort of bigger deals. So you go slow, you're building public confidence. That's what it's all about. But this isn't like that, right? Like 99% or more of the American public, as far as we know, has not had this thing. So a lot of people are dying now and we're under very heavy restrictions because the potential for death is catastrophic. You know, you don't want to say 50,000, 60,000 people isn't that many people, but it's a small fraction of like what we could be looking at with uncontrolled growth of this. And under those circumstances, speeding things up by two or three months is actually incredibly valuable. It will save tens of thousands of lives. It will rescue hundreds of billions of dollars in lost economic opportunity. It has incredible impact on school children's like learning and life prospects. Dylan Scott did a great piece for Vox about people who have medical problems that aren't acute but where I mean, this is like normal in life. It's like lots of us. It's just like we should see the doctor like sometimes. And because of coronavirus, like people are really either unable to do that or they're delaying it. And it's bad, right? It's a big drag on population wide health. And it's not, I think, a reason to like prematurely tell everyone, like, forget about this deadly, untreatable disease. But it is a reason to think that a kind of acceleration that wasn't seen as high value for measles and mumps and rubella and chickenpox would be incredibly high value for coronavirus and is worth making a, a serious exception to the normal rules a procedure. And in that sense, I mean, that is where I think it's similar to the HIV crisis in the 80s, you know, that it was a new emergent epidemic. And there was a real need to think differently because of not just the number of people who were ill, but for the impact that that illness and its spread was having on a broad swath of society. So it's not genuinely clear to me that there is you know, that this option has already been like considered and rejected or rejected out of hand. It seems a little bit like we're still in the pre phase one phase where like there are various teams working on vaccine development and the rewards for vaccine development seem to be pretty high. It's not exactly like there is a lack of investment in that space. So to what extent is this just kind of like, are you trying to prepare the ground for a decision that is going to be made later and that might actually, you know, depending on what vaccines are, what lines of research are promising and what vaccines are under development and what comes out of phase one first, might actually already be in the cards. Yeah, I mean, it, it's possible. The, the interesting thing is that there's sort of no rules about this. Human challenges are used these days most frequently for malaria-related tests. And the reason it's sort of everyone has agreed that's fine, is that the best available malaria treatments work really, really well. The reason malaria is such a serious public health problem isn't that it's like an incurable disease. It's that it afflicts people in very poor countries where the infrastructure is not that good and it's challenging to actually treat people. Um, so if you had a vaccine, that would be very valuable. But also a controlled experiment can be super duper duper safe. And they do them for that. What we have here, I would say, is a situation where there's a lack of clarity. The FDA could accept human challenge trial data for licensing, but we don't know if they would. And pharmaceutical companies could ask to be allowed to do that, but they aren't. And it's like nobody is saying no, but nobody seems like they want to move 
first. I think because of sort of understandable sensitivities, like the philanthropists funding this research, they don't want to be seen as like mad scientists, right? The pharmaceutical companies don't want to be held liable for killing people, which is what would very plausibly happen in here. And the FDA has its regular approval process, which is a kind of a like, you come to us, and then we'll tell you if we think your proposal makes sense. And it's all fine, but it's like a weird transaction cost situation where I think like having some people in the take sphere and then some people in Congress and then the president of the United States be like, yes, no, I think this is how we should do this would get the funders and the researchers and the scientists like properly aligned to actually organize a trial. Because right now we have some people in civil society trying to organize volunteers on an informal basis, uh, which is cool. I mean, that's a cool enterprise. But like ultimately you need like real medical involvement with that and screening of people and verification of who they are and some coordination with scientists and regulators as to like what kind of sample do we actually need. And and so it's a question of like, how do you get the ball rolling with a level of urgency that is not typical of this process? And I think not for bad reason. Like there's some FDA haters out there. Um, there's this like meme in uh, the libertarian world that we shouldn't do phase two trials at all, and that like any safe medicine should be sold by any pharmaceutical company with any kind of like claims that that they see they want. And and, and I wouldn't go there. Like, I, and I think it's one reason people are a little leery of this is that they know there's this like strong criticism of the approval process out there. But I'm really just saying it's like we need to make a concerted effort to say that like this is a special situation and that we will make special affordances and that we we want to hear unusually aggressive testing proposals, because in a way that we ordinarily wouldn't say getting this done six weeks faster is of urgent social importance, like it really is now. And we even saw that there was this talk the other day of like, well, an English team might have the most advanced vaccine. It worked well in a, in a monkey trial. And so then there's a question of like, well, will this be available in America? Will we have to wait in line behind Europeans? Which we might. But like, that would be really bad. Whereas ordinarily, if someone was like, oh, they cured cancer, but they're going to get it three weeks earlier in England than America, we'd still be like pretty fucking happy with that. But here it's like three, three weeks is too long. So you're basically making the argument that what we need is somebody with a lot of money for potential like lobbying and like award costs and outsized amount of outsized platform and political respect and a move fast and break things ideology. So basically, Peter Thiel needs to be on this. <laughs> Teal is one of the guys who wants to eliminate phase two trials for everything, which means people aren't going to listen to him. Or maybe they will. I mean, I think that they might. I think that the kind of move fast and break things ideology in this specific, I understand that this would, again, be a very specific circumstance. But I, I don't know. I am just filled with angst because I recall that the first generation of Thinking back to the HIV example, which is a complicated example to use because that, again, had its own specific context. Like there are a host of people between, say, 1988 and 1993 before the you know before AZT came out who took a whole lot of specific medication meant to battle HIV and prevent it from either turning into full blown AIDS or to counteract full blown AIDS who died. Like one of the challenges of this is, again, we don't have a disparate population where we can say that you are for sure safe from this illness. And I think that it would be particularly challenging to do this in our current context when there would be that part of this testing in which people either who were given a placebo or for people, again, in these different treatment regimens, the people who would die. And I think that that's something that medical science has to deal with us all the time. This is how this works. This is how the process of science works. The challenge is that we are putting the process of science into an existing context where for many of people, that's going to be anathema. I mean, I think the other problem here is that the short term experience we've had with enthusiasm for treatments for the coronavirus is the chloroquine example where they tried to skip phase one. <laughs> like there's, you know, I well, think that there's, there's a, there's, that's, I think that's an exaggeration. I mean, it's fair. It's not so much that there's an understandable reticence in light of that as, as there is like, 
there doesn't appear to be a constituency of people who are making like moderate exceptions given the current situation, right? There, and I feel like I feel like we've returned to this again and again and again that like there are lots of people who in light of everything that is going on, are saying, if we adhered to my pre-existing policy preferences, we could get out of this mess. There are some cases of people saying, okay, I've changed my mind and in or out of a crisis, it is now important that we do X, Y, and Z. There isn't a space, and I think a lot of this is just because flip-flopping is considered a political sin, slippery slopes are considered a massive political liability. There isn't a lot of space to say generally, yes, it's important that we go through everything. In this particular case, you know, we we should be more flexible. We should make an exception. Things that in general would be bad ideas are good ideas right now. All right. Let's take a break. Talk talk about some other some other good ideas from uh that were in fact bad ideas, yes. <laughs> Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta. Okay, so our paper for today is The Evolving Consequences of Oxycontin Reformulation on Drug Overdoses by David Powell and Rosalie Licardo-Pecula. I think people who, who are familiar with the broad outlines of, of the opioid crisis will remember this. But um, this started that people were taking prescription painkillers and they were being not just prescribed to a lot of people, but I think clearly abusively prescribed by a you know, a minority of people. And there was a, a problem centered around, quote unquote, pill mills and unscrupulous doctors. And they were handing out scripts for this. And people were taking these prescription painkillers for recreational purposes. People were becoming addicted and were using them. And the government, you know, moved maybe slower than it should have, but it definitely moved to clamp down on this. And some of that was a sort of DEA scrutiny of individual doctors, and some of it was a, a two-step regulatory effort to change how specifically the pill Oxycontin worked so that it would, I mean, it still contained opioids. I don't know anything about really how you abuse prescription opioids. But in the new reformulated pill, it just like didn't work as well as a recreational drug. And we've known for a long time that one consequence of this was to push addicts into the heroin market because, you know, addicts want to get a fix. If you make it harder for them to do what they've been doing, they, they go do something else. But that was seen. I, I did a, a show with, with Herman Lopez and it was all about this. And it was about like, look, like we essentially sacrificed the well-being of some of the existing stock of addicts, uh, pushing them into a more dangerous illegal drug in the hope that we would cut off the population of new addicts. It's clear from the like aggregate numbers that that didn't work. Uh, like the problem kept getting worse. And this research is trying to show that if you look sort of statistically on a state by state basis, that specifically where the reformulation had more of an impact, you saw not just a short term surge in kind of heroin usage, but the long term establishment of more robust illegal drug networks, right? Heroin dealers initially, and then distributors of fentanyl, and then distributors of other drugs like cocaine, fentanyl mixes. And this like very enduring legacy of high levels of dangerous illegal drug usage becoming entrenched in the communities that had had the kind of highest levels of overprescribing earlier, basically suggesting that this policy, which was d understood at the time to have downsides, but that those downsides proved to be much, much bigger and more enduring, I think, than the policymakers had had believed or hoped. 
I think that the idea of reformulation to discourage abuse, it's not just for opioids, as I think that many people may have experienced, but I'm, I'm interested because um, one example of an opioid that was reformulated and then pulled from the market altogether is Opana, which was approved in 2006. It was intended to be an extended, much like OxyContin. One of its main benefits was that it was supposed to work for 12 hours at a time. And... Um, the FDA determined that it was not abuse deterrent, and it was also, at the time, an extraordinarily popular drug for abuse. And so the company that made Opana came out with a new formulation in 2012 and said that we've changed the formulation in order to make it resistant to physical and chemical manipulation. It's worth keeping in mind in this paper that we, this white paper goes into this a little bit, that there are lots of different ways that drug users can attempt to beat back how pharmaceutical companies make drugs abuse resistant, including different ways of using it. And we see that even in non opioid instances. Uh, for instance, with drugs to treat ADHD, that there are some major changes with that formulation, even in terms of like changing the color of those drugs. And it's interesting because Opana was eventually pulled from the market in 2017 because the FDA could not say that the benefits of Opana outweighed the risks, even with reformulation. And it's so interesting because it's not just that people will and this paper goes into in detail how people go to different drugs to try and match that same sentiment. But it's that many times in, in order to break down these drugs effectively for abuse, that makes them more risky in many cases. Right. I mean, I think it is worth getting into while there are always going to be efforts to defeat the, you know, the latest reform reformulation and all of that, because the most common methods of abusing drugs involve crushing or dissolving them. The most common abuse deterrent formulation tends to be making it difficult to crush or dissolve a drug, which also means making it difficult to break the drug, which means making it difficult to cut a pill, which like even this paper tends to assume that there are not adverse effects to the population of legitimate users by making an abuse deterrent formulation. And like that's an understandable assumption to make for the purpose of an academic paper. And I'm not saying that the cost to legitimate users is as big as the effects in the illicit market. But it's definitely the case that if you're dealing with a substance powerful enough that not only do you want to regulate the people who are allowed to receive it, but you want to control as closely as possible, even the way that the people allowed to receive it, receive it. It's not an ideal situation to put those people in a situation where they have to take a you know, 10 milligram dose when a 7.5 milligram dose would suffice because they can't cut the damn pills in half, you know, that kind of thing. But the other thing that I think is important and is where this paper really kind of brings us beyond the general balloon theory of, oh, OxyContin users went to heroin, is that the theory wasn't of abuse deterrent formulation wasn't just we're going to sacrifice some of the existing addicts to prevent you know, the continued rise of addiction. It was, we're going to sacrifice some of the existing addicts, but not all of the existing addicts. That substitution effect will be a discrete phenomenon. And the research that's happened so far hasn't, you know, had shown a substitution to heroin immediately after, you know, the crackdowns on prescription drugs. And that was as expected. But it wasn't clear that that wasn't just going to like fade away as a crackdown on heroin succeeded or as people got clean or as, you know, the people who were going to overdose overdosed or whatever, that the demand for illicit opioids spurred the kind of mixing of substances that led ultimately to the popularity of fentanyl. Not even as a, you know, the other kind of strain that they're, of research that they're pulling in here is there's been a lot of development of research in like how the, how fentanyl got into the American drug supply, so to speak. But because of the stereotype of drug pushers, it's very easy to assume that like, oh, some like transnational criminal organization was synthesizing fentanyl. So of course, like it's going to get pushed into the veins of American drug users. What this ends up identifying is that it is just as plausible that the current prevalence of fentanyl was a result to stretch the heroin supply for dealers because the demand for heroin was so high, or that it was a deliberate choice by drug users to use drugs in complementarities with the case of cocaine, that is like it, that the demand created by this population of addicts was such that it 
we're not at all sure that only some of them will be sacrificed. And that, as Matt, as Matt said, like does mean that the downsides of this were not only much higher than initially assumed, but something that might have changed the calculus had everyone had perfect information to begin with. It's shocking when you go back to it, the extent to which these risks were sort of on the radar screen, but nothing was done about them exactly at, at the time, you know, and so it's it's a weird case where sometimes you have like genuine unintended consequences, but this was closer to a like controlled sort of experiment, but just without much backstop going right. Like we didn't focus as a policy community until several years into this on the fact that there were now people dealing heroin in places where traditionally there hadn't been any heroin dealers. Right. That like it was it was we always knew it's not like it was impossible to use heroin in a rural area. It's just that, like, in practice, there wasn't anyone to sell it. And, like, now there is. And that became established during a period of time when, as far as I know, I don't want to say, like, nobody was watching this, but there wasn't a large-scale concerted effort to say, okay, now that we are doing this reformulation, we are aware that there will probably be some diversion. And so here is how we are going to like check in on this, right? On like a three month, six month, 12 month, 18 month time scale, see what's going on, see how we're going to reassess whether or not this is working. And like th these are the benchmarks we're hoping to hit. And if it goes in some other way, we're going to decide it hasn't worked. Right. And that's sort of like the uh, the problem here. Right. Where it's like there was knowledge that something along these lines could occur, but there was no explicit statement of like this would be acceptable. This would be uh, we feel bad about it. And this other bar is like, holy shit, it's gone out of control. Instead, it just kind of snowballed for a period of time. And then everyone looks back and like, oh. That didn't go so well. Right. Instead, what you had was a kind of let a thousand flowers bloom approach to prescription drug abuse, which the authors, you know, are pretty, you know, they're they're pretty sanguine in the paper about the prospect that even in the absence of reformulation, you probably would have gotten the prescription drug crisis out of uh, under control. And they actually have like run an extrapolation, which they're only moderately confident in that even without any formulation whatsoever, you would have already bent the overdose curve, you know, by the end of their analysis, rather than having this absolutely historically unprecedented spike in overdoses as heroin and then fentanyl came into the the kind of drug bloodstream. I'm now wondering how drug dealers are coping with social distancing. That is a fascinating subject for another podcast. Uh, there's an article about uh, Latin American drug markets that I'll put in show notes. Uh, it's not it's not the U.S. case, but it's the it's the ones that I've come across over the last week. I am curious towards the end of the paper, and we've discussed this a little bit with the rise of cocaine overdoses as a as suggesting a possible complementar complementarity. That word is surprisingly challenging, as Dara mentioned. But I'm interested in how that to learn more about that, because they make the point that this is not an independent phenomenon, but it's linked to an increased demand for opioids. But um, cocaine is clearly not an opioid. So I'm just interested if there's more research on how we think about complementarity with two separate illicit drugs being used together or how we think about this in relation to reformulation, because that doesn't seem obvious to me. That's a good point. And because they're they're showing at the same time that there is an increased complementarity necessarily with like methamphetamine so it's not just like any drug will do right exactly yeah all right uh, <laughs> well thanks guys um thanks as always to our producer jeffrey geld and the weeds will be back on friday Hooray! Hooray!